Good morning, Grace Church. It is so good to see everyone here this morning. Tell your neighbor you're glad to see them on a Sunday morning. Amen. Those joining us on Facebook Live and live stream, so glad you've chosen to make this service a part of your day. And we know it will be a blessing to you. Before we begin our worship set this morning, let me just remind you of a couple of things. Of course, this coming Tuesday at 10 o'clock right here in the sanctuary is Tuesday morning prayer. If your schedule allows, we would love for you to come and join us in prayer uh, this coming Tuesday. And then this coming weekend is going to be a very uh, special and important weekend for us. We've got a, a couple of really, really exciting things happening. First of all, as you've heard announced, we're having family night outside on Saturday. That'll begin at 4 o'clock. And all you need to do is bring uh, lawn chairs and, and your own drinks. And everything else will be taken care of for you. So come out next Saturday. We're going to have a great time. And uh, just some good fellowship and some good food as well. Next Saturday at 4 o'clock. Also next Saturday, don't forget to roll your clocks back an hour. Right? So we're going to fall back next weekend and uh, lose an hour. So remember that. Don't want you to be... Uh, don't want you to be late or early or whatever that is that happens with the time. I don't know. And then finally, in the service next Sunday, we will be honoring all veterans in the veteran service next Sunday. And so come uh, ready for that. If you are a veteran and we don't already have your name, please get that to the church office. We want to honor you next Sunday. Amen. Amen. Stand with me this morning. We're ready to go to the Lord with our worship, with our praise, with our thanksgiving. And we're going to see a manifestation of God's presence today. I believe that with all of my heart. So if you're ready to worship and if you're ready to sing praises to God, I'm going to ask you just to clap your hands and lift your voice. And let's enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise.
That's how you feel. Would you open your heart to the Lord right now, everybody? Let's praise Him. Let's exalt Him today. everybody here today certainly our guests here today welcome we're so glad to have you join us today and again those following on live stream facebook live thank you so much uh, for being with us at grace church virtually today thank the lord we're glad to see all of you here today god bless you so very much wasn't it wonderful to see anthony stewart today baptized in the beautiful name of jesus Thank the Lord. <clears throat> always, always excited. Uh, I've seen a lot of people baptized. I baptize a lot of people. And uh, the, the excitement never wears off. And uh, wonderful, wonderful testimony behind that. Anthony is Sister April's br uh, brother. And uh, she texted me late yesterday afternoon and said that she had gone through some Bible study with Anthony and he saw the necessity of being baptized in the beautiful name of Jesus and she said can he be baptized tomorrow and uh, so I, I texted our sweet sister Landry and uh, I said can we make that happen she texted back a few minutes later and said it's all done it's all taken care of thank you all of you that are involved in that to make that happen thank you so very much Anthony do you mind walking up here uh, stand beside me for a moment he moved here several months ago and has been coming uh, to Grace Church uh, since then and we certainly welcome him we are so glad that he's here and of course I think anybody that's related to April Ejim is a fine person it's just how I feel about it amen thank the Lord and um, Anthony we're so glad today you were agreed saw it in the scripture to be baptized in the beautiful name of Jesus that's wonderful man and uh, nothing, there's nothing like it, uh, absolutely nothing like it. So as we do here, we'd like to give you a certificate of baptism that just certifies that you were baptized on Sunday, October 29th, so that you never forget this. And God bless you, sir, and uh, God's blessings be on you as you continue forward in Jesus' name. Let's give him some appreciation. Amen. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Now. I know you've been standing a long time and uh, uh, some of you just you know gave that deep sigh said finally we get to sit down for a few minutes and uh, but uh, as I like to do as our custom is here at Grace Church when I'm speaking at least I like for the folks to stand in honor to the Word of God so if you don't mind if you'd stand with me one more time I'm coming today very passionate about the message that I want to preach. I'm wanting to cast a very broad net and uh, to preach to all of us 
here today. But as the service was progressing, I saw the potential here today for an incredible, incredible altar service. A time for people to just shore up your commitment, to uh, just make sure everything in, in your life and your family is, is good. As the old song says, it is well with my soul. It's my desire to have everybody leave here today and to be able to honestly hum that song under your breath. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. I'm reading today from 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. And Elisha answered and said, Go. Verse 3, one said, Be content, I pray thee, to go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, cutting down a tree, the Bible said the axe head fell into the water, and the man cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Very simple story and one that may seem insignificant, but I hope today, if that's your perspective of this scripture reading, I hope to change it just a little bit. I want to preach to you for a little while today, just simply borrowed. Everybody say, thank God for the word. Thank you for standing. I appreciate it. God bless you, and you may be seated. As you've just heard, our text tells of a man that was cutting down a tree. And while he was engaged in this activity, the axe head came off the axe and fell into the water. And the man said, bottom line, to Elisha, This is a tragedy because it was borrowed. I'm sure he felt some degree of sadness. His mind probably ran through a gamut of scenarios and he knew that he had to face the owner who was no doubt a close friend, maybe a family member. Would it be the loss of a friendship? Would it be... Would the friendship continue but be tainted by this flaw? Would there be an assault on his responsibility? I remember a number of years ago, we lived in Tanglewood Subdivision, not far from here. And uh, a neighbor moved in a couple of doors down, actually a couple of doors up the street from us. And he came over one day and randomly knocked on the door and came to the door. And he said, do you have a flat shovel? I said, I do. He said, may I borrow it? I said, certainly. So I went and got the shovel and brought it to him. And I appreciated his honesty. I appreciated his transparency. Because he's the only one that's ever said this. He said, I'm going to borrow this shovel, but I'm not going to bring it back. If you want it, you come and get it. I wish everybody was honest like that because most of the things I lend out, that's what happens. Everybody else says, well, I'll bring it back, I'll bring it back. Just recently, as a matter of fact, 
I loaned someone a book to read out of my office. I'm very hesitant to do that, and if I can trust the person, I will. But even sometimes those I trust let me down miserably. And then months later, I go to look for the book, and I can't find it. And then I remember I loaned it to somebody, and then I can't remember who I loaned it to. So I don't get it back either way. But I loaned somebody a book about a year ago, actually, and I'd forgotten it. And they texted me and said, I feel so bad. You loaned me this book. I read it, and I never brought it back. So I'm going to drop it off at the church. And they did. Better late than never. I got it back. Borrowed. I'm sure all of us have borrowed things from people. And I'm sure all of us have had people borrow things from us. And I'm not going to say that I've been perfect along that line either. I've probably borrowed things and forgot about it. And um, there it is. I remember our sweet brother Alexander brought some tools to the church one time to help us with a project, and he left them all up there. So I brought them home, and I called him. And I said, Brother Alexander, you brought all this stuff, and um, you left it at the church. Let me bring it by. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Just keep it. You may need it another day. I thought, who can do that? But if you ever went to Brother Alexander's house and saw his backyard, he had a lot of things he could spare, uh, to say the least. Uh, no doubt about that. I want to preach to you today that everything we are, everything that we believe we possess is borrowed. In a sense, and even based on Scripture, that nothing we have is technically ours. When we read the Old Testament, we see that God, God distinguished between ownership, and possessions. God made a distinction. He made it very clear that He is the owner of everything. And we are just given the privilege and opportunity to possess it. We need to credit the source in our lives and admit and agree that all we have is borrowed. I want to make this statement early on in this message. I've never known a person to die and take anything they own or possess with them. Do you? The infant that came in the world today, the little child in our home, I have a slide that needs to go up on the screen. The youth that is in school or college, the man that is in the midst of his years, we're all living on borrowed time. The story is told of the Russian poet Samuel Marshak that when he first, when he was first in London before 1914, he did not know English well, and he went up to a man in the street and asked, please, what is time? He was asking, what time is it? But he didn't know English well, so he just said, please, what is time? The man looked surprised and, and replied back to the man. He said, that's a philosophical question. 
Why are you asking me? Centuries ago, St. Augustine pondered over the same question in his confessions, qui est tempus, what is time? Then he wrote, if no one asks me the question, I know. But if I must explain to someone who asks me, then I do not know. Regardless of our conception of time, our perception of it is usually negative. Time tends to be unpopular. It exercises a certain tyranny over our lives from early childhood. See how many of you can relate to this. In early childhood, our youth group setting up here at the front, the clock controls your lives. You're told virtually every night it's time to go to bed. You're told virtually every morning, either via your parents, your phone, your clock, it's time to get up. I remember being told by my parents over and over as a child, it's time for your bath. I did not understand the implication of that statement until I had children and I began to tell them, dude, you stink. You need, you need to go get in the bathtub like now. No, I don't. I remember my mother used to have to tell me to wash my hair. It looked like I poured oil in my hair. It was greasy, horrible greasy. You need to wash your hair. And I would sit there in defiance and say, no, I don't. Well, I understand now. We understand that time is a certain tyrant in our life. Have you ever been told as a child, it's time to do your homework. I've heard my dad say that to me innumerable numbers of time. As we move through life and become more of adult, we realize it's time to go to work. It's time to mow the yard. It's time to go to the dentist. It's time to catch a plane. And for some, it's time to retire. Even then, time imprisons us by hanging heavy through boredom and slow-moving days. Have you ever experienced those days when time literally just drags by? It just never moves. People relate to time in many different ways. In sports, referees call time. Prisoners serve time. Musicians mark time. Historians record time. Loafers, lazy people, kill time. Statisticians keep time. So no matter how people relate to time, the fact remains that all of us are given the same amount of time. There are only 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week. Use them wisely. Humanity is a highly temporary episode on a very petty planet. Yes, even on this earth, Life as to duration is just as one lightning swift swing of the pendulum of the clock of time. It's like the glimpse of a passing ship. It's just as a stop of the postman at your mailbox. Just as a snowflake on a river. A moment seen and then it is gone forever. There's never enough time it seems to do all the things that we want to do.
Bernard Berenson once said, I wish I could stand on a busy street corner with my hat in my hand and beg people to throw me all of their wasted hours. Duration is notoriously difficult to judge. Sometimes whole hours streak past out of our grasp. And then again, sometimes minutes crawl by so slowly that each passing second announces its presence. Amid the flux of such subjective assessments, let me offer to you a few educated estimates pertaining to time. According to Harper's Magazine, it takes one to three minutes to make a dream. It takes 45 seconds for your blood to circulate around your body. It takes about two and a half hours to get through an hour playing time in professional football. It takes four to six months to make Swiss cheese. It takes about a year to build a piano. It takes about 36 hours to read the federal budget. It takes more than 130 days to grow an artichoke. And the duration of life is three score and ten, or about 70 years. Time is truly borrowed. I wish I could really get into this part of this message the way I want to, but time is serving in its tyrant role right now. Not only is time borrowed, but possessions are borrowed. I will plead with you to stay with me today. We hear men talk about my house, my business, my land, my possessions. I even hear pastors talk about my church. I determined a long time ago, this isn't my church. I didn't pay anything for it. I heard Brother Lonnie Treadway say one time, preaching it because of the times when he pastored in Beaumont, his church seemingly was on the brink of bankruptcy. And he said, he prayed one time and he said, God, for years I've said this was my church, but I made a mistake at your church now, you can have it. I'm not going to hang around to watch it go bankrupt. How true it is that all these things are not our own. They are loaned to us for a season. Let me remind you today of the whole book of Job. The very nature of that book, the very nature of the story of Job teaches us that we don't own anything. If you remember that story, when the sun rose one morning upon Job, he was the richest and greatest of all the men in the east. His flocks, his herds covered the plains and whitened the hillside. But by the time the sun set that day, he was a pauper. Job shaved his head, rent his mantle, and fell down on the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. And the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Not all faith, not all have faith to meet adversity as Job met it that day. And then to bless the Lord literally in all things. But none can deny the truth of what Job said. A truth that applies to all of us. Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, built a great city. He built a great city on the banks of the Euphrates River some 24 centuries ago. He built the city in the same general neighborhood where ages before men had assembled to build a tower so high that the top of it would reach into heaven where they had failed, where the people building the Tower of Babel had failed. Nebuchadnezzar knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that he had succeeded. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, the city was built in the form of a square 14 miles long on every side. It had two protective walls, one of them 373 feet high and 90 feet wide. The city had 25 gates of burnished brass and great highways ran through the city, entering and leaving those 25 gates. On an artificial hill, on an artificial mountain literally, 400 feet high are the famous hanging gardens that, have, that Nebuchadnezzar built. The hanging gardens are terraces. So that his wife, who was from Median and was accustomed to mountains of her land, would not feel as homesick. He literally built her a mountain in their backyard. The city was splendid with palaces and temples and beautiful gardens and abounding in tunnels and bridges and canals and adorned with the spoils of conquered kingdoms. Let no one imagine that ours is the only age of great buildings or great structures. Babylon was the greatest capital the world had ever seen up to that time and in certain respects it has never seen its equal. You can see that proud monarch walking that evening along the wall of Babylon looking down upon all of his splendors as they were illuminated by the light of the setting sun and saying to himself and to others who were in earshot. As Daniel records in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty, he said. And even while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is departed from you. That very day, Nebuchadnezzar was pulled from his throne and driven into a wilderness where his body was wet with the dew of heaven. And he did eat grass as the ox until he learned that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king and a great ruler, but as far as permanent possessions was concerned, what happened to him is true for all of us. His ground brought forth so plentifully that his only problem and trouble was how to bestow his goods 
and make use of his incredible income. This example is repeated in form of a parable in the New Testament. Jesus referred to a rich man, and I want you to notice how Jesus told the parable. This is what he said, Mark, uh, mark his use of the possessive first-person pronoun. He said, the rich man Jesus was talking about in this parable said, this will I do. I will pull down my borns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But as quickly as God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, when he boasted of his possessions, God said unto this man, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? If we could get all men and women, especially if we could get all Christian men and women to realize that all of their earthly possessions are loaned to them by God. If we could get people to understand that, and that one day the loan will be required and recalled, no minister would ever have to ask, would have to ask for a dime to be given to the kingdom and to the support of God's kingdom. The great Muslim conqueror Saladin, who fought with Richard the Lionhearted about the walls of Acre, and whose tomb you can see at Damascus, left directions that he should be buried with his two hands extended out of his coffin so that those empty hands might teach men that they brought nothing into the world and certainly could take nothing out of it. Time is borrowed. Possessions are borrowed. But here's my message to you. not a greater mercy that God extends to people and that is to give them opportunities our opportunities are borrowed William James was a notable philosopher and had a respected mind in the field of psychology and he enjoyed telling this story about himself one day in his home, he heard the sound of water running onto the floor upstairs. He went up to discover that his son had left the water on in the sink and it was running over onto the floor. Keep in mind, this man's a very notable, very respected philosopher. He sees the water running onto the floor and his son, seeing his dad standing in the doorway, said, Dad, this is not a time to philosophize. Grab a mop. a lot of humor in that story but I would love to have some people here today quit trying to reason things out in your mind and all of that and grab a place alone somewhere with God that's what I would like to see happen here today there's a parallel to that story in one of the gospels someone came to Jesus in Luke 13 and said Lord Lord 
Will those who are saved be few? I've asked that question. Some of you have. Just how many are there going to be in heaven? How many is going to be right with God? Jesus looked at that as that's kind of a nice bar stool problem. But as he always did, Jesus cut through the relevancy to the person's real need, saying, in effect, forget how many are going to be saved. Just make sure you're one of them. I don't know why today I feel so passionate and so heavy about this message. I saw a headline yesterday or Friday. I think they've come to the conclusion now that there were, I think it was seven people killed in that major traffic pileup just outside of Slidell earlier in the week. And I wonder how many people got up that morning and just assumed that I've made this drive a thousand times. I saw a picture of one of those that had passed in that accident. It was a young woman, looked like in her maybe early 20s, mid-20s maybe. Don't know anything about her, don't even know her name, but I wondered what her attitude was life about, that I've made this drive a thousand times. I've gone to work, I get bored with it. But under dense heavy fog, did not see the people ahead of her. At a dead stop, and however fast she was driving, to pile into the back end of somebody and her life be snapped away. Not here to be morbid, but it's real. It's real. It happens to people every day. Every day. And I don't know why I feel such a heaviness about preaching to you the fact that opportunities today are borrowed. Jesus went on to illustrate to this person that asked how many will be saved. He went on to illustrate by talking about a door that will be shut and those left standing outside the door will be outside forever lost and eternally damned. Make sure you're not one of them, he said. In other words, the time to act is now. The time to take advantage of an opportunity is now. I had lunch with somebody recently, and they said they felt some compassion about a young man that they knew and was just kind of, in my words, drifting through life, kind of a ship without a sail. And this person felt a, a burden, a desire, and he called the, the person, and they met. And um, the person with the burden told the other, the other person, said, I'll offer you a job. could be life-changing. You could make a lot of money. And the person said, I'll let you know. And a few days later called back and said, thank you, but I'm not interested. And I immediately thought, what a waste of an opportunity. What a waste. And if the Lord tarries, may come back someday to that young, that, that, young, that young person 20 years from now will say, I wished, I wished, I wish I had taken advantage of that opportunity. God is here today for all of us. 
And all of us have opportunities, but we kind of want to be like Pharaoh when the plague of the frogs came and Moses offered to pray to God to get rid of them. And he said, no, I'm good for tonight. Do it tomorrow. And he spent another night with the frogs. And the illustrations are endless. There's people that have sat on these church chairs that I've preached my heart out to that have already gone into eternity and they didn't listen. And these things plague my conscience sometimes that I didn't preach hard enough, loud enough, long enough, whatever you want to say. Maybe I preached too long and they lost interest. Don't philosophize, Dad. Grab them up. Do something today while there's opportunity. Believe in God's words and act on them. There's an old Arab proverb that has significance for our text. One cannot mount a camel that has not yet arrived, nor one that has already departed. Wisdom. Jesus said the kingdom has now arrived. It's time to act. This is the moment. Believe and act upon it. There's coming a time when your opportunity will have departed. There is coming a time when it will be too late and the door will be shut and you'll be standing there knocking, wanting to be let in. And you'll be alone knocking while there's countless others on the other side enjoying the things that God has promised. could talk a long time about the door of the ark that Noah built. Opportunity knocks but once. There's a Jewish proverb that says four things cannot come back. A spoken word, a sped arrow, an arrow that's been shot. Time passed and the neglected opportunity. In a nursery where they grow trees and plants in London, Ontario, Canada. There's a sign in the tree section which reads this. The best best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago. A sobering jolt that reminds ones that trees do take a long time to mature. I understand that an oak tree is about 60 years old before it starts bearing acorns. But that isn't the whole story of the sign in the Canadian tree nursery. The complete message is this. The best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. That's the doctrine of the still open opportunity. The tree can still be planted in spite of the squandered opportunities of the past 25 years. Jesus is telling his listeners essentially the same hopeful message. The door is still open and as long as it is, one has an opportunity to get in. Opportunity is a small word with a great meaning. But the word lost is even a smaller word. And it also has a great meaning. But when you put the two together, it becomes a tragedy. Lost opportunity. Opportunity is not a tangible thing. Something that can be lost and found again. Once it's lost, it's lost and gone forever. Another opportunity may present itself, but what, what if it should not? And if it should, have we learned the lesson well enough in the school of experience to take advantage of it when it does come? 
I'm pleading with everybody in this building, if you can be just a little bit closer to Jesus, please don't neglect the opportunity. You may need the strength you gain today for something that may come your way tomorrow. Neglect is the most dastardly or shameful of all the enemies of mankind because it is unpretentious in its demeanor. It does not scowl menacingly. It does not brandish a flaming sword. As a matter of fact, I believe neglect wears a disarming smile. Yet its dagger rips with the blood of far more victims than does that of an open infidelity and rebellion against God. Neglect stabbed Pilate and damned his soul. The sharp knife of neglect hewed down the mighty Felix in the book of Acts and the august, grand, majestic king Agrippa. Felix is the one that said, I will serve God when it's a more convenient time. It was chief executioner in the wilderness as Moses implored the Israelites to look to the brazen serpent and live. Its vanquished lies sprawls grotesquely upon every page of history from the Egyptian Passover to the last Sunday service that will be held here at Grace Church. Neglect never won a battle. It never garnered a laurel. It never erected a monument to fame. It does not plant so it doesn't reap. It doesn't attempt so it cannot gain. It doesn't assail so it doesn't win. If Noah had waited to build the ark of safety, he would have perished in the own flood he preached about. If Lot had hesitated to obey the angel's command to flee the gates of Sodom, he himself would have been consumed in the fires of destruction. If the devil can get a man to postpone salvation, he is as sure of that man's soul as though the grave was already occupied and the judgment was passed. The human soul undergoes a hardening process as the years add themselves to a man. And woe to that one who awakes too late to the frightful fact that salvation's day is forever past and the opportunity lies mutilated and dead in some frightful sepulcher. There's a tremendous note of urgency in the prophet's challenge. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. For too many it shall become the forerunner of the faithful assize where Jesus says depart from me you cursed into everlasting fire and prepare for the devil prepare for the devil and his angels open defiance towards God and willful rejection of his terms of grace are not essential to man's damnation open defiance toward God and willful rejection of his terms of grace are not essential to man's damnation you don't have to go that far. Watch this. Judas Iscariot did not bring down the lash on the naked back of Jesus. A Roman soldier did that. Judas didn't plait the crown of thorns that tore an ugly gash into his regal brow. The palace guards did that. Judas didn't nail Jesus to the cross. He didn't pound the hammer one time. He didn't carry the hammer. He didn't bring the nails. Other Roman soldiers did that. But the same hell that contains those who spit ran down Jesus' face 
that same hell also contains the soul of Judas Iscariot. Why? Because he missed his opportunity. He chose merely to neglect a golden day of opportunity. And through that neglect, he forfeited eternal life. I preached a sermon years ago at the First Pentecostal Church in Baton Rouge. We were leaving to go into ministry, and Brother Young asked me to preach that Sunday night. I, it's, it's, burned into my, it's, it's, it's like a brand and burned into my brain. I can tell you the sermon I preached. I can tell you all about it. It was about Judas, Judas Iscariot. I went through a time where I was mesmerized by this man that saw all the things that he saw and witnessed all the things that Jesus did and the miracles and the signs and wonders and heard all the parables and all of that. And he killed himself. Just hours before that long-awaited day of atonement would begin. The Old Testament is filled with people who would have given anything to have experienced that all-encompassing mercy, grace, the shed blood of Calvary. They'd have given their life, they'd have given anything. Judas had that opportunity, and he killed himself within 24 hours of Calvary. Opportunity is borrowed. I'm preaching to people here today. In conclusion today, the following story was told by a father who learned how unwise it was to neglect spending time with his son. He said, one year ago, one year ago today, I sat at my desk with a month's bills and overdue accounts setting before me when my bright-faced young boy rushed in and very impetuously announced, happy birthday, Dad. Mom says you're 40 years old today, so I'm going to give you 40 kisses, one for each year. little boy began to make good on his word the dad said and I told him the dad said oh Andy not now I'm too busy the little boy became silent he said when I looked up I saw that his big blue eyes were filled with tears and he said I told my little boy very apologetically he said um, you can finish son tomorrow he made no reply, but he was unable to conceal his disappointment as he quietly walked away. That same evening, he said, I called to him and said, come and finish those kisses, Andy. Either he didn't hear me or he wasn't in the mood. He said there was no response from Andy. Two months later, as a result of an accident, God took him home to heaven. His body was laid to rest in a little cemetery near a place where he loved to play. The robin's note was never sweeter than my son's voice. And the turtle dove that cooed to its nestlings was never so gentle as a little one who left unfinished his love-imposed task of kissing his father on the cheek 40 times. The man went on to say, if only I could tell you how much regret those thoughtless words I spoke and how my heart is aching now because of my unkind actions. Instead, 
I sat here thinking, why didn't I return his love? Why didn't, why did I, I grieve this, his young heart that was so full of tenderness and affection? And this man came to realize that he had an opportunity that will never come to him again. Again, I remind you that I'm very passionate and I'm very heavy with this sermon today. If you'll stand with me. This coming Wednesday night, Lord willing, I want to talk to you about the precision of prophecy. And I'll remind you how close we are to the rapture of the church this coming Wednesday night. I think of the five foolish virgins that wasted an opportunity. I think of the city of Jerusalem that Jesus wept over where an opportunity was so wasted. I remember when I was a kid, some of you, there might be one or two here that would remember this, that when we shared the same church, there was a very tall, slender man that grew up in the early years of the First Pentecostal Church in Baton Rouge when it was on, when it was downtown on America Street. He moved away because of his job, but he always came back to visit. The man had probably one of the most mellow, soothing voices, and I could still hear it in my ear. I've told this story before. When he would visit the church, pastor where it was Brother Rigdon or Brother Young would always ask Brother James Downs to come sing. It's only two songs I remember hearing him sing. Every time he came it's only two songs. One was He Touched Me, written by Bill Gaither in the early 60s. The second one was written by Dottie Rambo and was simply titled Remind Me. And he would get up and sing the things that I love and hold dear to my heart. They're borrowed and they're not mine at all. Jesus, only let me use them to brighten my life. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. He said, roll back the curtain of memory now and then and show me where you brought me from and where I might have been. Just remember I'm human and humans forget. So remind me, remind me. Again, I don't want to be morbid here this morning. Again, it's a reality, but I can't tell you how many caskets I've stood in front of and looked in the face of the deceased. And most of them I've known for a long, long time and thought, your spouse isn't with you. Your kids are not with you. None of your holdings are with you. You, You've made this journey alone. I've heard many people testify going into their last moments of life. I've stood beside their bedside and they said, I'm afraid. I wish I could bring someone with me on this journey from here to my last breath. And it doesn't matter how many family members were standing around the room saying, we're with you, dad. We're with you, mom. We're right here. It's not the same because when you begin that journey, you can't take anybody with you. You can take nothing you own with you. You go that route by yourself. Even our beloved T.F. Tenney 
said that I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just a little nervous about the process. Wishing there was somebody I could take with me. The family that was around his bed said he did not pass until his pastor, Brother Anthony Mangan, arrived. And within moments of Brother Anthony being there and speaking to him, Brother Teddy closed his eyes and said, I'm in the presence of God. That's the last thing he said. There's people here today that have an opportunity. You have an opportunity. You're wasting your life away over petty things. I just wish that you'd realize that even your children that you set on your lap here in church and you take in and out to the nursery, to the restroom, whatever, they're not yours. God could take them anytime he wanted. I just today feel this urgency that all of us in this building need to make sure that we're right with God. There's nothing on this planet worth going to hell over. And all the plans we make, and I agree with that, I think you ought to make plans. I think you ought to plan. I think you ought to be prepared. I, all of that, I believe in all that. I'm not stupid. But at the first and foremost of that, making sure you're calling an election is sure. As pastor, I'll be honest, be transparent as I can be. As pastor, there's phone calls that I hope never come. And that's when the backslidden and the lukewarm, those that are playing with God and what have you, their lives were term terminated far short of what anyone expected and now the family and friends are left to deal with the aftermath of neglect and lost opportunity. I know of a pastor today that lost a saint in his church and wasn't ready to meet God and his wife told the story that he's laid on the floor in his living room all night long weeping and sobbing and wished he had done things just a little bit different. I don't apologize today for being so compelling not here to be morbid you and I both know there's people on this planet today that will not be here tomorrow the Bible said that hell has enlarged its mouth and I'm pleading today with people especially when you have young children at home be everything you can to lead them to Calvary's cross and to make sure they get a fair representation of who Jesus is so, on that note, whatever you guys have prepared to sing, I open up the front of this building for you to come with your family, maybe bring your children with you and say, God, we're not leaving here today until we know we're ready. We're not leaving here today until I know I'm ready. I'm asking you today to take advantage, to get on the camel while it's here. It's here. Once it's gone. Take hurt, he take all of that, he take depression, anxiety. 
open your heart to him and 